So please sit in a way that's comfortable and at ease and listen, not so much to remember anything that's said, but to listen and see if any of the words that you hear um, touch what you know to be true in yourself. The rest of them you can just let, let go by or discard. When we sit in meditation, and I always love the period at the beginning of Monday nights where we've all these people who've been busy and coming in off the highway and doing your work and tending your children and your gardens and your business and shopping and all those things, and all of a sudden we just stop and take a breath and go, ah, here we are, just being instead of doing so much. Um, And as we sit and practice both the quality of mindfulness and compassion, we begin to reconnect or find a a wise and a more beautiful relationship to our bodies, our feelings, our thoughts. You sit and sometimes people will say, well, I've got some body pain, Um, maybe I should just move. And initially the instruction is to sit and pay attention and not be so afraid of your pain. Because we live in a culture that's kind of terrified of pain and do everything. It's cold, you turn up the heat. It's warm, you turn on the air conditioning. You know, it's a comfort culture. Um, But there are going to be times in your life or in the lives of people that you love where um, there will be pain. And if you don't know how to be with it with some graciousness and ease and not be so frightened of it, um, you're not really very free to live. You'll be afraid all the time. The same is true when people say, I get so bored when I meditate or it's lonely. And I say, great, you know, because otherwise if you don't sit with your loneliness or boredom and you get home and you start to meditate a little and you get a little bit lonely, what do you do or bored? You open the refrigerator, right? You call a friend, you turn on the computer, you know, because you can't be with yourself. So you start to sit and be with the whole ecosystem of being a human being, with the pains of the body and the pleasure. Some people find joy scary and difficult. What do I do? And I start to feel good. What is this strange feeling? Oh, it's contentment, you know? Oh, it's joy. Um, Is that all right? Can I be happy? Or you watch the mind do its things, you know, and it tells a a million stories an hour. Maybe it's 10,000 or something like that. And, you know, as Mark Twain said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened, you know. (laughs) And you just see all the stories that it tells, but they're different than your breath or the body that's seated there. And there was a cartoon in The New Yorker that showed this car crossing the vast Utah landscape and a roadside billboard that said, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? (laughs) And there you are. So you sit and you've got, you know, your own body and mind and that's what it is. And then you start to have the mysterious question, well, who am I? Are I these feelings? Am I happiness or sadness? Am I my opinions, my views, you know, am I this body which is aging, if you haven't noticed, and I'm just, I am talking about mine, but not mine alone, you know. Um, Cartoon from Jules Pfeiffer, where he, um, you know, in four 
little panels, there's a man sitting there kind of thoughtfully. He said, I inherited my father's um, attitudes and way of looking at the world. I inherited my father's way of movement and his style. I inherited my father's um, uh, ways of thinking and acting um, in a very direct way, and I inherited my mother's contempt for my father. You know, <laughs> there you are, like, right? All in, you know, four little panels, right? And you start to sit and get quiet, and you see all the identities you have. I'm a good person, I'm not, I should do this, or your ambitions, your loves, your, the things you've missed, the, the things that are unfinished in the heart, and so forth. And as you practice, you learn a certain dignity and graciousness and the capacity to be compassionate with the whole of your humanity. And that brings a freedom of heart and freedom of mind. But it turns out, difficult though that is, because it's not that easy. You know, you have to sit with the, what Zorba calls the whole catastrophe in your own life, that, that that's just the training wheels, basically. You sit in order to learn a sense of dignity and graciousness and some sense of compassion and presence. Um, But then when you get up from your meditation, the point is to be able to embody it and to apply it in some fashion in all the domains of your life. So as the Buddhist texts tell, the Buddha was seated there one day in the forest grove in northern India, and the minister of one of the kingdoms nearby came, was sent by the king, um, to inquire of the Buddha, would it be a good idea to make war on the Vajians, who were the neighboring kingdom? Now, of course, the Buddha could have said, war? That's really stupid. Don't do that. Nobody, and he did at some points. He said, in war, there's no victors. And we all know this, really. He could have said, don't do it, but being a skillful teacher, Instead, he asked a series of questions. He said, do the Vajians hold regular and frequent assemblies? Do they gather in harmony? Do they speak to one another in harmony? Do they uh, depart in harmony? If so, they can be expected to prosper and not decline. Do the Vajians carry on the wisest teachings of their elders in previous generations? They do, sir. Do they um, honor and revere those who are to be respected in the community? They do, sir. sir. Um, Do they care for um, and protect wives, daughters, those who are ill, those who are young, all those who are vulnerable or weak in the society? They do, sir. Do they honor and respect the environment and the natural world in which they live? They do, sir. Then they will, um, they, 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 then they can be expected to prosper and not decline. And so the minister went back and they decided not to make war on the Vajians. At that moment, the Buddha then called all the monks and nuns who were in the surrounding forests and monasteries together reported this conversation to them, and then said to them, in the same way, you who are the followers of the Dharma, followers of the way, if you meet together and have regular assemblies and gather in harmony, meet in harmony and break up in harmony, 
so can you be expected to prosper and not decline. As long as you honor the elders and the traditions that are wise from the past, as long as you do not get lost in your fears and desires, but honor your personal mindfulness and preserve it, as long as you meet with respect for one another, with modesty and humility and a willingness to learn, as long as you cultivate an inner sense of well-being and tranquility and understanding, as long as you practice compassion and loving-kindness, so long will you too prosper and not decline. And this was among the very last teachings of the Buddha's life. He was saying, all right, this is how what is of value in what I've taught will be sustained. And he would go from monastery to monastery and say, all right, how are you all doing together? Are you viewing one another with kindly eyes? Are you living together like milk and water in harmony with one another? And sometimes the monks and nuns would say yes, and he would be very pleased. Sometimes they wouldn't. And then he would give them the same teaching again and again, say, why don't you try again better, you know, next week or next year. Now the teaching, this text that I just read, was part of the opening talk that I gave um, last week. And Stephen was there with me at the Garrison Institute um, for a meeting of about 220 Buddhist teachers from around North America and, and Europe. And part of it was to just listen to one another and learn and support one another and not be so isolated or sectarian. Because in uh, Asia, as Buddhism developed in Southeast Asia and Burma and Thailand and then in China and Japan and Tibet, it got very separated into these all these different schools and sects. So at one point, <clears throat> a Korean Zen master, Sung San, Venerable Sung San Roshi, or San Sinim, met in the Albuquerque airport with um, Kalu Rinpoche, a venerable and great old Tibetan Lama. Um, and so here were these two enlightened masters meeting in the Albuquerque airport and sitting there waiting for their planes. And San Sinim, the Korean Zen master, liked, as Zen teachers do, to kind of test people to see how enlightened they were. So he was going to test, um, test this great Tibetan Lama. And so he pulled out of his bag an orange. And he held it up to the old master through the translators. And he said, what is this? What is this? And held his hand, what is this? Now, and if you were a good Zen student, your answer would be to take the orange and open it take out a piece and bite and chew it. That's the Zen answer. This orange is something to eat. And, and you, you don't say anything, you just, that's what it is, okay? So he's saying, what is this? What is this? Over and over again. And finally, the Tibetan Lama leans over to his translator and says, what's the matter? Don't they have oranges where he comes from? <laughs> you know? So, when my Burmese teacher went came to America, he stopped in Japan and to a monastery where they were using the kiyosaku, which is this traditional stick that they hit students with. And he said, this can't be Buddhism. Buddha did not teach people to go around whacking one another with sticks. That they just, they, you know, it's, something has happened wrong here, right? Or when the, you know, when a different Burmese teacher saw these, you know, Tibetan tankas with the 
Buddha there with the naked dakinis having sexual relations with the naked dakini on his lap said, you know, this is just not what the Buddha taught. I'm sorry, it's not how it came down. But on the other hand, you know, then the Japanese think, oh, the Burmese and the Thais, they just teach Hinayana selfish Buddhism, you know, they don't have compassion or loving kindness only for yourself, as if that were true. And then the Tibetan, you know, and the Zen people say, oh, the Tibetans, they're just too complicated. They've got all these devas and dakinis and, you know, I mean, it's just this, just emptiness. And, and nobody respected anybody, basically. They didn't even know each other. So part of the gift, if you will, of bringing teachers together here in the West is that for the first time in 2,000 years, these traditions actually are learning about one another and half the teachers in that room had actually studied in multiple lineages and it was a beautiful thing and you all know it. I mean you go to the local spiritual bookstore if there are any left or if it's just Amazon I don't know but anyway and <laughs> and and there's the wisdom of the ages there's the best Sufi poetry of Rumi and Hafez and there's you know the teachings of the greatest you know yogis of India and there's the Buddhist teachings and there's the shamanic teachings in the esoteric Christianity and it's like it's all there for you and within the Buddhist tradition these things that have been separated and misunderstood for millennia are now coming together so we had these conversations um, and there were some in the room who were focused on preserving the tradition and the texts and scholars and having long retreats like they used to do in training in Tibet or in Thailand. And there are others who were the adapters who were doing mindfulness in prisons and working in school systems and hospitals and in the military and um, trying to change things. And it used to be that people, you know, would view each other somewhat askance, a certain kind of suspicion. The, the traditionalists would say, well, we have the real Dharma and the people who are working in the prisons and so forth. It's good that they're doing it, but they're kind of watering it down in the hospitals. Mindfulness in hospitals, that's not the real Dharma, you know. Um, and of course, the people who are adapting and finding new forms would say, oh, you know, if you conservative people and just do the old text in the old ways, it's never going to work. It's, this is a different world, a different culture. You need to find a different language. But fortunately, things have changed. As somebody said in the meeting, I used to tell people years ago in the 70s that I taught meditation and they would think I was really weird. Now when I go in the airport or in the supermarket or the gas station and if somebody finds out I teach meditation, their response is, wow, I could really use some of that, you know. <laughs> things have changed. And what happened instead of the suspicion and so forth, as one teacher said, is I teach long retreats and I used to feel guilty that I wasn't working in the prison system or working for justice in some other way. But now I realize that that's not my work. I'm really glad they're doing that and I'm doing what I know how to do. And somebody else is working in hospitals and that's what they know how to do. And people began to feel that they were part of a community, part of a mandala, part of a wholeness. Um, I think we'd just grown up. We were just kind of nicer to each other and there was a little, you know, you get a little older and less con con contentious or something like that. But the question also became, well, what really was important to preserve? And people would say, it's the teachings of selflessness or non-selfishness. Or it's the teaching of karma and cause and effect. Or it's compassion 
That's the essence. Or it's generosity and not keeping things for yourself. It's interdependence or it's devotion. Devotion to truth, to living from the deepest place that you know. It's love. Or maybe it's enlightenment, not to cling to things. Enlightenment is a release of your opinions and views and the way you think things should be and an openness of mind. Or maybe it's the Buddha saying, not by caste or race or creed is one noble, but by the state of one's heart. And so all these things were voiced and then people began to realize, ah, this is us. It's not just the Tibetans and the you know Chinese and the Japanese and the Burmese and the Thai and all that that it really is it's our humanity together and it was a very beautiful thing but it was also kind of interesting because we had the pioneer teachers together um, at the beginning of the meeting 25 or so of us who'd been doing it since the 1960s Richard Baker Roshi and Lama Surya Das and Sylvia and so forth in one room and we all had our Medicare cards. It was kind of depressing actually, <laughs> you know. It was, and, and if it had all been only us, it would have been really terrifying. It was like the theosophists. We were about to die out, really, honestly. Everybody gray hair or none, right? But fortunately, in the other room, there were about 50 next generation teachers who were in their 30s and early 40s. Noah Levine and Will Kabat-Zinn and, you know, Spring Washam and Josh Bartok and a whole bunch of other wonderful young teachers um, who it turned out were not only very de devoted and committed to the same things um, but also much more interested in justice and in the environment and really adapting things in this new time and new generation and it, it made me feel really quite relieved then we all came together and had a much bigger group come and join us um, and they insisted um, when we came together, they ran part of the meeting that one of the practices that we did was run by one of the um, next generation teachers, Vinnie Ferraro. Um, and it was a practice that's used in diversity training in a beautiful way called crossing the line, or it has a number of different names to it. But he put a blue tape down the middle of this huge chapel where these 200 some teachers were and prepared us in a very beautiful way because He's done this many, many times. He said, I've done it with street gangs and with middle school kids and whatever, a thousand times. He said, but I don't know, this is the toughest gang I think I've ever done it. <laughs> anyway, um, and then he began to ask a series of questions so that we would know each other, not by the color of the robes or the, you know, the tradition. And some of them were the questions about origin. If you came from a family that was poor, cross the line. And then you see those people. If you have African blood and you cross the line, if you have, if you are Latino, cross the line. One person, it was like breathtaking. What, you know, what is our problem? Um, it was very, it really touched people. If you're Jewish, cross the line. About half the Buddhists in the room, it's like stunning, you know. And then, why is this? And they said, and then if these people were born um, a generation before in Europe, probably none of them would be alive. If you are um, LGBTQRST, you know, <laughs> cross the line. Um, if you 
are a woman who's ever been mistreated because you were a woman cross the line. Every woman in the room cross the line, right? If you're a man who's ever been goaded to mistreat someone because it's manly cross the line, an awful lot of men cross the line. If you come from a family where there's been mental illness, cross the line. If you come from a background where there's alcoholism or drug use, abuse, cross the line. And people just started to see one another. If you've ever seriously tried to commit suicide, cross the line. So there were all those kind of questions. And all of a sudden it wasn't Theravada, Vajrayana, you know, Zen. It was just human beings. Um, If you've ever seen real violence between people, cross the line. If you, then there were the Buddhist questions. He really tuned them. If you've ever misused your teacher role, cross the line. If you're a monastic and you felt disrespected by lay people, cross the line. If you're a lay person and you felt disrespected by the monastics, cross the line. If you believe in past and future lives, cross the line. Half crossed, half didn't, and some straddled the line, right? (laughs) If you believe enlightenment, cross the line, you know. And by the end of that process, there was a sense of a kind of shared humanity that was so much bigger even than all the different Buddhist labels and teachings and so forth. Um, And it made me think, as Stephen will be speaking in a few minutes, wishing that um, we could do that in um, Israel and Palestine. Because in some way, there's so much parallel there as there is everywhere in the world where there is racism and tribalism and all the insane ways that we view with our prejudices instead of with our heart, where we see one another not clearly and not wisely. So much misunderstanding. And I know when I went to visit Stephen and other friends in Israel, you know, there it was. I'd take taxi rides around Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, and certain taxi drivers would talk about the Arabs as stupid and dirty and violent. And it was just like being in the South, you know, in, um, and having people talk about white folks who were really racist talk about black people. It felt exactly the same way. It was terrible. But then, you know, I went to this amazing meeting of the Sukhita, of this group of teenagers, Palestinian and uh, Israeli teenagers who'd been meeting three years together, and they brought their parents together for the first time, got a number of their parents out of the West Bank because it was in Israel. And I was in a group several different circles, and I remember this Palestinian family standing there, some of the men and women there with their children, saying, the only Jewish people I've met in the last 20 years have been soldiers. They're all aggressive. They're all mean. And I forgot that they had mothers. I forgot that they had mothers. I didn't remember. I thought that that's who they were. You know? And um, you could feel 
the, the differences that people were unable to see beyond. And of course, one of the problems is how much trauma there is in the community. Maybe Stephen will speak about it. For the Israelis, it's the Holocaust and the history of you know, some thousands of years of, of anti-Semitism in different ways that Jewish people have experienced. For the Palestinians, it's the Nakba and it's the, the loss of their land, their villages, their cultures, their olive groves, and so forth. So much trauma. And a good friend of mine who Stephen knows, I think Gina Ross, who's a, a masterful teacher in trauma work, has been going around working with Israeli journalists, Palestinian too, but mostly journalists, other people, military people and so forth, because she said if, they, if the journalists don't know how to release trauma, what happens is they see a, a bus that's been blown up or they see you know, Palestinian children who've been shot or whatever kind of terrible thing they see, and it traumatizes you. It does terrible things to you to see that kind of death and violence. And then the next time any little thing happens, all that trauma is layered on top of it. And so, and it builds up in them and everything that they write starts to become filtered by the unprocessed suffering that they've seen. And so until the journalists can know, learn how to clear their bodies and hearts of that trauma, they'll be keeping the cycle of violence going because that's all they see. Do you understand? So Stephen, um, in his work, and others, have done this amazing work for 15, 20, 25 years. They've led um, yatras, which are peace walks, across Israel, along the, along the great wall that had been built between West Bank and, and uh, Israel, Palestine and Israel. Um, uh, and um, they've really, they've brought people together to meet in, as that text said, and respect one another, respect their elders, brought, brought people to volunteer and support one another in harmony. Um, and I was able to be part of a, a, a walk that, that Stephen and his group organized across Jerusalem and around the walls of the old city to the Mount of Olives. And there we met with rabbis and sheikhs and you know, Christian elders and hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, and it was like the walks that Gandhi used to do or Thich Nhat Hanh did. And it was so moving and that's part of what the work he's, he's done. Um, and I was surprised to see how much Dharma interest there was in Israel, actually. One of the events that he arranged for me in Tel Aviv, there was almost a thousand people that came. So there's a kind of hunger for it. And then I was spent time on the West Bank, and I got to meet Sami Awad, who runs the Gandhi Nonviolent Center for Palestinians there. And one of their best things he said is, "We got the movie Gandhi translated into Arabic, because if when he said it used to have subtitles, but Arabic subtitles don't work terribly terribly well linguistically. It's hard to get it, and so we got a grant and we translated because a lot of the people in the Arabic world." think that Gandhi was anti-Muslim, which wasn't true in the separation of Egypt. Um, and so that movie was, was put out in the last few years all throughout the Arab world, which may be one little piece of what's happening now when you see, the, see all these beautiful movements of, of revolution there. And I got to meet with the bereaved mothers and the former combatants, and it was like that process that Vinnie led. How many of you have lost children? How many of you lost colleagues and friends and brothers in, 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 these, in this insane battle? 
And I found, and Stephen will tell you, there were, there were literally hundreds of groups that were doing amazing work. Um, and even though right now it's still polarized and terrible, um, it will change. It has to. Because the West Bank is tiny. You know, it's probably as big as the Bay Area if you go from San Jose to, to Santa Rosa or something. It's just that big. There are 500,000 Israelis living there and 3 million Palestinians. And they're spread around. It's like Swiss cheese. There's no military solution. You can't do it. Um, they have to be together. And all these groups, the bereaved mothers, the former combatants, the teenagers, they are beginning to weave a fabric that's never in the news. All you see in the news are people with guns and bombs, but they're beginning to weave the fabric of humanity together. And I brought you one image and then Stephen can start to talk. But even as you listen, I guess before I show you this image, I'm talking about this whether it was the teacher meeting in, in New York or the Israelis and the Palestinians, because part of our Dharma practice, once we quiet the mind and make a relationship with our joys and sorrows, is to be able to see one another with um, kindly eyes, as the Buddha said, to see the humanity of one another, no matter who we are, to really recognize, is that you in there, and you and you, that, that we are together. And so this is an image from, there's this huge concrete wall that's been built, security wall, and it looks like the walls around San Quentin, it's, it's terrible, you know, like guard towers, um, and much of it goes into Palestinian territory, and it's cut down olive groves and things that belong to Palestinians, um, and on the, on the far side, on the West Bank side, in one place, for example, the children drew this huge picture of an olive grove because the olive grove was lost. And they wrote, um, our olive grove is not lost to us. And there were all these pictures of olive trees on it. And this is a picture, and it's quite large. You can see the car down in the right-hand bottom corner, so it's like 20 feet tall or something of a peace dove that was painted on the wall. There's lots of graffiti, beautiful graffiti. And as you see in the peace dove, it's carrying an olive branch, but it also has a, um, the sight from a rifle, as if someone's going to shoot it, but it's, also, it's wearing a flak jacket. It's wearing a bulletproof vest. It says, okay, you know, it's all right. You know, I'm still here, and I'm still willing to fly the wall and still willing to go from one side to another. So with that, I introduce my friend Stephen, um, and I'm glad you can be with us. So uh, I'm very grateful um, to Jack um, for inviting me to share the podium with him tonight. And uh, I'm a couple of weeks in the South Bay area teaching uh, Dharma there. Um, what I want to do this evening is really reflect on more than 15 years of working for peace in the Middle East, but working from the perspective of the Dharma. Uh, what kind of contributions has the Dharma made to the uh, peace activities that we do, and how does the Dharma work in a situation on the front line? And in that respect, I'd like to invite all of you to consider conflict in your own life um, and how uh, the kind of things that uh, we're doing um, and the way Dharma 
is applied to the pain of conflict, how it might help you as well. Because we're all uh, in the midst of uh, a life in which there is bound to be conflict. Um, the Middle Eastern conflict is called an intractable conflict. And it's a self-sustaining cycle. And it's quite amazing that all the professors and all the rabbis and all the priests and all the imams and all the wise men and all the children and all... Nobody can stop it. Like where, what happened to capture a whole people for a hundred years in a situation where everybody agrees there is absolute pain and suffering generation after generation and nobody can stop it. And the Buddha is very, here the Buddha is very wise. The Buddha said that there will be quarrels and fights and sticks and weapons will be used as long as there is underlying tendency to be, to be attached to your views, to be somebody separate from others, full of self, to be uh, full of your emotions and your emotional reactions to the other, to be, um, I guess, a whole list, uh, um, tendency to want things and not to want things, to, um, and basically just not to be wise and free and open. And these tendencies are fed by the mind that is busy thinking what I want, what I don't want, and proliferating thoughts inside. So what that message is, is that conflict is natural as long as we have these underlying tendencies which are really about being a human being. Because which one of us doesn't have these underlying tendencies? And that a little bit takes down the pressure because we will have conflict in our lives and we shouldn't in a way blame ourselves and think, well, we mustn't have conflict because we must be somewhere, uh, we're higher than that. Or we've been practicing, we've been going to retreats and then we argue with our children or our family. And How is that possible? Or we even teach Dharma. And how is it possible we come home from teaching a retreat and we argue with somebody? <laughs> Never. <laughs> <laughs> so it really does, I think, um, we can a uh, little bit relax around that conflict is inevitable in the nature of the mind and the underlying tendencies there. And it's very difficult when the whole people is stuck in that situation. I mean, in the Israel-Palestine frame, there really is no concept of what peace is like. Everyone says shalom, shalom, shalom a hundred times a day. <laughs> it's the most used word in Israel, Israel shalom. But nobody has any idea what that means. And it's the most unpeaceful place in the world. <laughs> so, um, and there's been plenty of attempts to solve the problem through dialogue and so on. Uh, peace uh, conferences, Oslo, Madrid, uh, uh, Camp David, uh, Geneva, and so on. And it reminds me of this story of the students who come to the rabbi and say, um, Rabbi, there's so much conflict in the world. How do we solve, how, how do you solve the conflict? So the rabbi says, well, there's a ordinary way and then there's a miraculous way. And so the student said, oh, so the ordinary way is people sitting down opposite each other and so trying to solve their problems together through dialogue. And the rabbi said, no, no, that's the miraculous way. 
So at the same time, um, it's a test. Conflict is a kind of test for us, a test for our wisdom, a test for our spiritual practice. Um, and even the Buddha, by the way, the Buddha's community, there were plenty of conflicts that were unsolvable. I don't know about plenty, but in the literature, in the suttas, there are examples where the Buddha said, I can't deal with you guys. The monks were f- arguing with each other about points of, uh, points of, of uh, discipline, and, wouldn't, and, and the Buddha himself couldn't solve the problem. So he said, okay, I'm getting out of here. I can't stand you arguing, monks. I'm going to the forest. <laughs> So, the first question that I want to throw out here to us and the question that we ask ourselves in our piecework is do we really want to end conflict? Or actually, is there a deeper investment in maintaining conflict? And you can imagine a situation in your own lives, say, at work, where there's a conflict inside the workplace and it goes on and on and on then there is an investment in that. And the mind creates a conflict consciousness. And the consciousness doesn't, is, get, is, is in loops and keeps going round, and there's so much investment in conflict that nobody really knows how to get out of it. And there is, in a sense, an interest to maintain it, because that's the world I know. I against them, the Republicans against the Democrats. Like, we maintain that somehow status of conflict perpetually, because we have an interest somewhere in maintaining it. There is, in the Middle East, that interest, in a, in a way, in maintaining. It's easily possible to have peace in the Middle East. It's easily possible if there is the will to do it. There are cousins, as we were talking before. We're, we're, there's cousins intermeshed, as, as Jack was saying, one with another. We're all together there. I live in the Galilee, and I live in uh, uh, um, a kind of alternative lifestyle village, and right next to us is Druze and Arab towns and villages and Jewish, and we're all fine together, actually. Nobody knows that, but we're living happily in the Galilee uh, next to each other. There's not a wedding in our village or in their uh, village that we don't go there, they come to us. Um, it's easy to do it if, if there is the will. But there has to be more than a will. There has to be a hunger for it. There has to be, in a way, a, a sense of we can't cope with this anymore, this suffering. A real hunger, and then it would happen. And until that happens, it's very hard. We're ready to pay a price for peace. So one of the things that we've been doing is the peace walks. And one of the uh, reasons we do peace walk, a peace walk is not only to create peace outside, but to empower people who are taking part in the walks to actually feel that peace is possible and to shift the mind from a conflict consciousness to a peace consciousness. So the walks creating a sense of hope, of steadiness, uh, of I can change something. Because before and, and this is relevant to all of us here, before we can really deal with, it, with conflict, especially when it's embedded in a group or in a family or in a workplace, or, uh, we have to build ourselves, in a sense, to be peacemakers, to be um, uh, out of the loop. 
and, um, and to feel empowered, we can change things. So I want to talk about what the Peace Walks feel like. I was going to show one or two pictures, but it's not kind of relevant to, to the room here. But we walk in silence, in a long line, one after another, Palestinians and Israelis, Jews and Arabs. And we walk slowly and mindfully in silence. And we walk, we used to walk, we don't do it so much anymore, but it, it's, uh, it, it, we, we, we did for years. Um, there is a steadiness that begins to grow and a sense of, I'm walking on this earth with my brothers. It's non-verbal. It grows on the inside. A sense of being, I am together with. We are no different from each other. It's very powerful, the, the peace walks. Because we, do it, we walk slowly and mindfully. And it's powerful as an image. We've been on the television quite a few times. Um, because when people see us walking through the towns and through Jerusalem and through Tel Aviv, also through the countryside, uh, small villages, people stop and look at us. There's a real strong message in there. And sometimes we've had people on the side watching us and crying, especially in a, in a way older people that see that we're doing something, expressing something with our bodies, with our being, that cannot be expressed by words. We express peacefulness. And here is an important message of the Dharma for all of us uh, in relation to conflict. It is not, you can solve or help to solve conflicts, not necessarily on the level of story. What is my story? What is your story? But on the level of walking your talk, on the level of being, on the level of peacefulness. If you can be peaceful, that gives a powerful message to the other, and of course to yourself. Uh, one of the slogans we use in the Peace Walks is, um, there is no way to peace, peace is the way. So we don't want to sort of run after peace over there, but we want to be peaceful here, right now, embodying it, and that makes the change, or that helps to make the change, in us and in others. And it's a radical shift. Uh, it is nothing about who is right and who is wrong. It's a sense of um, shifting in the mind. There's a beautiful Buddhist text about this, that um, the Buddha was asked, how do you solve problems if there's real conflict and um, differences in views and anger and, uh, and so on. And the Buddha said, well, if there is um, no strong views and no strong emotions of anger and rage and so on, it's easy. If there is strong views but no strong emotions, it's difficult, but it's, it's tiring, but it's possible to talk to the person. If there is strong emotions but no strong views, difficult, but it is possible to talk to the person. But if there is both strong views and strong emotions, which is situation, I think, in Israel-Palestine, then you can't use the language, but never underestimate the power of equanimity.
That's the bottom line there. Never underestimate the power of equanimity. And sometimes when you're in the middle of a conflict, you can just be equanimous and steady, and something changes in the environment. I remember um, I used to teach a class of, um, uh, in the Dharma class, uh, of uh, the um, elderly uh, of the kibbutzim in the north. And they were all about 70 years old, this class. And one woman, after a while, she came back to me and she said, you know what? When all my family are fighting and screaming and shouting at each other and the children running about and the adults arguing about politics, I take my chair, I sit right in the middle of the room, I sit quietly like this, and I breathe, and slowly, slowly, everybody quietens down. (laughs) So, one of the um, the questions that we need to ask ourselves in relation to conflict, and I invite all of you to um, remember conflicts you've had or that you have now, and consider how your equanimity, some steadiness, some embodiment of peace, some inner quiet can help where the argument doesn't, where the stories, who's right, who's not right, will go nowhere. And uh, just reflect uh, uh, on that. And um, Another issue that um, we practice in the peace walks is a sense of less investing in ourselves, in being uh, a Palestinian, a Jew, a Israeli, a tall or short, or young or old. A sense that in the line, as we walk, we are all the same. There's no difference. And it's, in a way, a relief. People who come to the walk say, I'm so relieved, I don't have to hold this uh, pressure of being an Israeli and them and us. It's holding, it takes a lot of energy to hold that uh, that uh, us and them place. It's a big relief to kind of, oh, I can just be with others without the boundaries. And um, the boundaries include protection. I need to protect myself against the other. The boundaries are fundamental. The protection is part of the building of the boundary and in fact part of the building of a self. It's about protection. And so when we can let go a little bit of our fears we let go of the boundaries, and then we can invite the other, whoever they are, to come in. And I've got a story, we, one of the old-timers in the Peace Walks is um, a Bedouin sheikh, sheikh, a leader of a Bedouin tribe uh, called Abu Amin. And uh, once we were, um, we were doing a walk in the northern town of Akko, by the sea. And we went to the local rabbi of the town and said, we want to do this walk. You're welcome to have your uh, Jewish uh, students come and join us if you want, but we'd like your blessing. Uh, And he said, fine, and he gave us his blessing and so on. And then he asked Abu Amin, the rabbi, and it was a beautiful little dialogue. The, The rabbi asked Abu Amin, this Bedouin sheikh with the headdress and so on, how do you make peace, actually? What do you do personally to make peace? 
And Abu Amin said, when I go through a Jewish town or village, at the head of the line of peace walkers, and we walk slowly through, if someone shouts at me, go home Arab, I absorb that violence into me and smile and let it go. And when I absorb other people's violence, that stops the chain. That's pure Dharma, coming from Bedouin Sheikh. It's his Dharma, but it's, it, that's the wisdom, uh, uh, a real deep wisdom, um, a truth that is, uh, in a way, beyond uh, any ownership, beyond any group. It's a fundamental truth. And when we reduce the sense of self and the sense of boundary, we can begin to put ourselves in other people's shoes. And Shantideva, a great Buddhist teacher, um, said, putting yourself in the other's shoes is sacred. It's a sacred act. There's something holy about it. It's not, uh, it's not superficial. It's something deep. If we can put ourselves in the other's shoes, we're reducing our sense of protection, our boundaries, our limited self, and we're expanding ourselves to include the other. And that act of putting ourselves in the other's shoes is a powerful act, and it needs effort sometimes. We have to go out and do that. And um, it needs, in a way, our whole life of mindfulness, of spiritual practice. In a way, we bring to a conflict our whole previous life. It's not something that we can easily learn from the day to tomorrow. In the middle of a conflict, actually, it's sometimes very difficult to, uh, to see where our head and tail is. We're, we're in the middle of a conflict. It, it's stormy. It, it takes us over. So we need, in a way, practice when we're not in conflict to apply to when we are in conflict. And in a way, it demands our whole spiritual life and all the meditations we can possibly do uh, that's the moment when we need it. And uh, that empathy and that l- reducing self allows also some deeper questions like um, maybe underneath subconsciously I expect someone else to change more than I expect myself to change. <laughs> maybe I want them to do the change and I don't, I'm not ready to change myself. One of the most, we found in another, we did another kind of activity in which we found the most powerful way of building empathy and putting ourselves in the other's shoes and creating peace is based on the first noble truth of the Buddha, which is if suffering and pain is known is a brother rather than an enemy, is known, that liberates us. There's a liberation inside the familiarity, the uh, intimacy with pain and suffering. And so we use this in workshops. We brought um, Israelis, uh, each time 15 Israelis, to the Palestinian 
territories, the city of Nablus in the West Bank, and we met with 15 Palestinians, and we will go to them. In other words, we allow them to host us, which is a very important symbolic act, that the Palestinians wouldn't have to keep running to the dominant power or the dominant force in the Israelis and sort of come to us. We came to them, and we, went, we did this for about seven years. Nearly every month or every couple of months, we brought another group to Annapolis. We worked for 48 hours. We decided we needed to do something intensive, work 48 hours, uh, and um, we slept in Palestinian houses there. The first day of the two days was just about feeling safe with each other. It was just about friendliness and warmth and sharing small stories and so on, um, having cups of tea together um, and so on. Then on the second day, <laughs> the heart of the workshop happened, which was in, in, in dyads with four eyes, taking as much time as we need, sometimes an hour, an hour and a half, sharing each, other, each other's pain. And someone would, one of the parties, the Palestinian or the Israeli, would begin to tell the pain of his life or her life. And the second party, second person, would just be deep listening, occasionally asking questions or helping, but not responding with their story. And then it would go to the second person who would tell their pain, how their daily life is the suffering that this conflict creates or any other suffering that, that comes up for them. And the, uh, the second person was the listener. And we gave it real space and then we came back together again and, uh, and sort of wrapped ourselves together uh, as a whole group and sort of uh, uh, held it. And from there reflected on what happened. And it really made, an, this act of sharing pain made an amazing difference. There, something irreversible happened then. And people who were, went through this workshop again and again and again told, told us that we never, something irreversible happened. There was a change that, that, that after that we couldn't go back to the old story of conflict and labeling. And we had soldiers coming uh, in our group, not, not in uniform, but there were soldiers that were coming in the group, and we had Palestinian street fighters coming into the group and sharing. And people again said what Jack said before, I never realized that Israelis could be human beings. Oh, I never realized that Palestinians suffered so much from us. Um, one time there was I remember two uh, Palestinian so Hamas, uh, basically street fighters, um, and they came to the workshop. And they started the evening, or the, in the day, standing on the side and cursing. And they're cursing the Palestinians, saying, how can you talk to Israelis? And they were cursing the Israelis, saying, how can you come here? You're killers, you're soldiers, you're, you're killing us. And they just stood at the side of the of the room cursing. And then slowly, slowly, during the day, we kept inviting them in. They refused, and they, they quietened down a bit and just threw uh, comments now and then. 
went through our process, and the next day they came back, and we were very surprised. And there they were. And we asked them, please, you don't have to be part of this, but just tell us your story. And they came and they told, of course, this terrible story about stories, that how each family had been affected, how their sister had been killed in one case, and a small brother had been killed in the street in another case, shot. And uh, their family, their parents had been taken off to prison, and all kinds of things, uh, terrible stories. And they told their story, and we were listening, we held them um, in our attention, in our deep listening. And... Um, and something really changed. And one of the Israeli participants, who was a um, very motherly woman of 55, uh, and she sort of went to them and hugged them and said, you're, you're like my children. You are like my sons. I love you like my sons. Eight years later, these two young guys are still telephoning the same woman who lives in a kibbutz in Israel, and saying, are you still with us? We're with you. <laughs> We're with you. Are you our mother? You're still our mother. We, you are our mother. You're our mother forever. I mean, it, it, it was very powerful, these, these, uh, th this work that we did. Um, so, if you can manage to allow some of that pain to emerge in any situation of conflict, it's the truth, the truth um, emerges, and the truth heals. And the allowing the pain to come up, instead of the denying of the pain, and closing it down, and shutting it down, and just projecting onto the other, is allowing of the pain to be shared mutually, is one of the most powerful ways of uh, solving conflict and getting into the other's shoes, um, being in empathy, being in harmony. Uh, it shifts everything. So, one other aspect that I want to mention, um, another kind of tool that we used, is basically simple friendliness and compassion. It is the oil that makes the gears of work. We as we walked, or as we did this, uh, these weekends, um, we just spread friendliness. One of the pictures that I wanted to show you, that you can imagine it, is Abu Amin, the Bedouin sheikh, uh, in real intimacy with two Israeli soldiers. And they're laughing together, and they're, they're touching each other. And he was a great... Uh, he, he spread friendliness. We all spread friendliness as we walked through the towns and the villages. If someone shouted at us, and people often did, we just beamed friendliness. If people... Uh, uh, we never got actual physical violence against the walkers, but lots of verbal violence. We just beamed friendliness. But if also to the dogs passing by and the birds flying over, the policemen that walk with us sometimes to, you know, uh, on, on the flanks or in front of give them friendliness, offer them tea. The people, the right wing, the left wing, just keep beaming friendliness, friendliness, friendliness. And it's a healing process, and um, it's something that, again, we can practice in our own life. Just beaming friendliness. Uh, 
compassion, friendliness. And with it is a sort of big picture, because friendliness is something beyond the self. It's something that collects all of us together. And, it, and we can feel in conflict. If we're in conflict with somebody, or, or, or in a situation of conflict, not only we can express friendliness, but a little bit a sense that we are caught in something that is beyond our control. There is nothing to do here except compassion. There is something here that's rolling that we can't actually solve. And so compassion is always there, friendliness is always there to wrap the parties together and hold the parties together in friendliness. And here, and here is our, our compassionate heart can sometimes heal where other things cannot. Um, holding, it's, too, it's a big story. We can hold the Israelis and Palestinians in compassion. It's too big for people to solve right now, but compassion is always there. So the final uh, comment, um, lots of people ask us, does it work? Has it made peace? Well, they're, they're still fighting, so what did you do actually? All your Buddhist peace work, you know, what, 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 why didn't you stop the and the Buddha himself, by the way, didn't manage to stop, although he did stop this one with the Vigians, but he didn't stop other fights, battles at the time. And if the Buddha himself can't do it sometimes, then don't feel too bad that we can't do it either. Um, but the truth is that we were doing a different, a non-political work. We were not there to do politics. But what we were doing is trying to create peacemakers, we were trying to empower people to be, each one in their own life, a peacemaker. And to um, empower, to educate, to train. Uh, so a teacher, a Palestinian teacher, can go back to school after going to one of our workshops and know what to say to the children. Yes, the Israelis are not all soldiers. Yes, there are people there that really want peace. And the, and the Israeli can go back to his Israeli teacher, uh, uh, Workers, a soldier can go back to his unit and say, yeah, Palestinians suffering, they're human beings. They want peace like everybody. We've just been projecting all these stories on them. And it keeps alive a message. And maybe this message that we're keeping alive, a kind of a flame that we're keeping alive, the picture of the dove, um, we're just holding that. And at the right time, I trust and I have faith, the, when the karma makes it possible, then uh, our bit will be there. And a small uh, story to illustrate this, that you never quite know where the results will pop up. There was a very difficult crisis when the government had to eject uh, Jewish settlers from Gaza. And this happened some years ago, I forget when, but all the Jewish settlers in Gaza ha were uh, ejected, were taken out of uh, Gaza. And they were building for months violent, a violent reaction in the newspapers. They were, they were storing weapons. But it was the Israeli army and the police had to go there and get people out of their homes. And one of our Dharma practitioners, one of the people, uh, old-time uh, a Buddhist practitioner from our commun Dharma community actually had access to the, sol to the soldiers and the officers and the police there for some reason. He served with them in the, uh, in the army 
And he managed to show how ways of non-violence could work where violence didn't work. And he actually helped to train the officers and the soldiers to do the work they had to do with some more compassion and non-violence. And it was extraordinary. Nobody could understand it happened without any violence whatsoever. And the newspapers afterwards were saying, how is it possible? We were all prepared, the whole country was prepared for a huge violence. And it came, it all went really peacefully. Um, and so I think that it, it does work, in, but not in the way that necessarily we, in the linear way that we kind of look and see, have expectations. So finally, we've got a new program now called The Ceasefire Within, and uh, The Ceasefire in the Heart, and we're now doing groups and, uh, in Israel of really trying to help people look at the way they build views and the conflict consciousness. And so we're, we're doing that work. And I have also a dream. I would love to lead a peace walk through Central Park to bring out from the synagogues the Jews and from the communities the Muslims and just keep walking slowly and silently around Central Park until the crazy suffering pain of the Middle East stops. <laughs> Just a couple more words and, and we'll end. Um, first, a lot of gratitude to Stephen. And I, I want to say that all the money that you put in the basket tonight and all the money that you gave as you came in and all of it is going to be used for both his work and other, other of these groups that, that Stephen has been a part of. Um, so please be generous in that way tonight. But these last few words, um, this is from Thomas Merton, and it's really echoing what, what Stephen said. Oh, and I need to say, he also has a clinic right on the, right on the line between the Israel and Palestine, um, a naturopathic kind of clinic, and he's been helping the Arab um, and Palestinian community on the other side reclaim their indigenous herbal medicine, which has gotten lost. So they're coming over to the Israeli side to work with Stephen as a doctor and learn... Um, again, be re-empowered to use all the kinds of indigenous medicine that was part of their tradition. But this from Thomas Merton. He writes, <clears throat> as, a, as a mystic and a, and a sage, he says, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps bring about its opposite. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. And these were his words to activists. And there's some way in which, you know, it's hundreds and thousands of people that Stephen's trained and that have done these walks for, for hours or days across all the parts of Israel and parts of Palestine and, you know, the ceasefire within very large community of people, that it's planting seeds and those seeds, the way things work in the world, if you plant good seeds, eventually, however long it takes, eventually they, be, they bear fruit and they become what grows. And then I have this thing that I sometimes read from the Associated Press um, last year after the earthquake in Haiti. The American Red Cross got all these donations for the people 
in Haiti, but nothing stood out like the coins and crumpled dollar bills that spilled from one envelope. A gift, $14.64, came from the pockets of homeless people at a downtown Baltimore shelter with the note, we are worried about our brothers and sisters in Haiti. There's something that you said about sharing our pain um, and with it the compassion and the connection and the love of humanity that comes when we're real with one another. So whether we sit in our own meditation and deal with our joys and sorrows and our full measure of humanity, um, and that prepares us in some way to be able to look in another's eyes, as Stephen said, in those groups and you know, just to sit and listen to one another. Um, it's what changes the world. Nothing, I mean, all the outer things are important and need to be done, but more than anything, it's not going to be, you know, biotechnology and, and computers and internet and all those things. They can be used for peace or war, either way. Um, it's also going to have to be a change of human heart and human consciousness. And I respect so much the work that Stephen's done and that so many of you do, and thank you for it. So let's just sit for a moment. Salam, Shalom, Shanti. May you carry peace in your heart for yourself, for all that you encounter. May that heart of friendliness that Stephen spoke about shine forth from you. Thank you and blessings. Good night. And thank you for your